Welcome to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl. No my haere mai, kia ora, and welcome to our Books and Beyond Literary Lounge with Alison and Inika. Kia ora, Inika. Kia ora, Alison. Well, look, today we're going to um, get straight into it. We're going to be talking about what we've been reading, and we have some TBR titles as well, some for your to-be-read list. <laughs> so, so, look, I'd like to start this morning, if I may, um, uh, so, and I want to talk about a book of poetry that's come from our own city, Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, and it's called Rough Lives Speak, and it's by the uh, Street Poets and Artists Collective Enterprise. So um, this is a, a new book that gives a voice to the voiceless, and it's been published just in the last couple of months by the publishing arm of the Auckland Libraries, and it's available in hard copy and also as an e-book. Now, Rothmive Speak is a collection of poetry by members of Auckland's rough sleeping community. And it's been the brainchild of its editor, Darren Kamali, who's um, Auckland Council Library's Pacific Heritage Advisor and also the founder of SPACE, which stands for the Street Poets and Artists Collective Enterprise. And Darren is a super colleague of ours. He's a really good guy, isn't he, Inca? He is. And a now, very talented poet. Oh, yes, absolutely. Now, he started a series of poetry workshops for Street Fano in March 2021. And um, apart from stopping during the COVID lockdown, these workshops have been um, a regular fixture at the Auckland City Mission. And Darren says that it was so exciting to get the collection of poems published and he's really excited now to share it with the community and he says that it's such a joyful moment. Mm. He also says that the book is, is much more than, than just poetry and to quote him, he says, this book isn't just a collection of stories, it represents the mana and dignity of the people who have shared them with us. And look, it's a fantastic book. The poems, um, it's pretty heavy, though. Um, they touch on the themes of, of suicide, mental health, well-being, incarceration, family violence, homelessness, addiction and loneliness. But um, I found the, there was a lot of hope in the poetry as well mm. and some funny moments too, some great humour. So now, look... Um, Poetry royalty are involved with this book. Absolutely. It's been co-edited, yeah, by the our New Zealand poet laureate David Eggleton, and um, the back cover blurb is by our former poet laureate Selena Tusitala Marsh. So it's got huge credentials. Now, um, Wilf Holt, um, fairly well-known um, member of the Auckland City Mission staff, says that the book represents so much for those whose stories are within the pages. And, quote Wilf, he says, it's more than words on a page. This process has been healing for many of the people involved as they've discovered or rediscovered their poetry talent and they've had a platform to tell their stories. It has been wonderful watching them commit to the classes, work hard on their poetry and bond with each other. 
So, yeah, um, totally agree with what Will's saying there. And the book, it's beautifully produced. And um, as I said before, I think the poets are just super talented. Mm. Their poetry is like a window into the soul of the streets. I really enjoyed the creative work that's that's on display here. And I highly recommend that our listeners take a look at this book. And I really hope that the creators, Filippo Tarr, John Joseph, Lana, Richard, Tim and other Richard, know how much their gifts will be appreciated for many, many years to come. So highly recommended. And that book is Rough Life Speak. Yes, I was lucky enough to go to the launch of Rough Life Speak, which was held at the Auckland City Library. That's right. Yes, and it was a wonderful evening. Um, many of the poets were there on the night. They had an exhibition of some of the poetry and also some of the accompanying artwork yes. in the book. And um, there was a beautiful um, readings by some of the poets and um lovely support from the community um, there was lots of beautiful lays being given um, to each of the poets who were represented in the book and you could see the pride um, a lot of people are not used to public speaking and mm. wow they're, they're, um, they did such a beautiful job of sharing their poetry with the um, the huge crowd that was gathered there um, to celebrate this work and their work uh, and bringing it all together yeah, and the huge talent that that's got. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Alison. Now, um, we've got some more booking news. Um, you've probably heard in the um, in the news last week that um, the 2022 Booker Prize winner has been announced. And the winning title this year is The Seven Moons of Marley Almeida by Shahan Karunatilaka. Um, now, um, this you will probably also read that there's a New Zealand connection um, yeah. with Sri Lankan author um, Karunana Tilaka. Um, he was born in Colombo and his family shifted from Sri Lanka to Aotearoa when he was 15 years old. So he uh, ended up studying at Wanganui Collegiate and at Massey University. Um, and he since lived and worked in London, Amsterdam and Singapore. So we say congratulations um, on that amazing win. And now I must admit, I'm still in the list for this one. You know, I put lots of the, the long lists and short lists on my list and it is now very long for this particular title for the Seven Moons. So I'll have to come back to you with our review on that one. In the meantime, I'm still working my way through the other um, long and shortlisted titles. Um, I'm in the Irish section right now and I'm just loving it. I must admit, there always does seem to be an Irish section in any book, a literary long list, doesn't there, Alison? Yeah, there sure does. <laughs> yeah, we love our Irish writers. We do. Well, last time I reviewed Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan, and this week I've been reading The Colony by Audrey McGee, a 2022 publication. It's available in our adult fiction collection and on Libby and Overdrive as an e-book and e-audio. E-audio would be good, wouldn't it, with that lovely Irish accent? Oh, Yes. The colony is set in the summer of 1979 and it's set on a remote and unnamed um, island off the coast of Ireland. Um, Lloyd is an English painter. He's having a bit of a crisis of confidence in his career and in his marriage. Um, the two are interlinked as his wife is an, uh, a gallery owner. And he's um, on the lookout for dramatic landscapes and naive village scenes. So he's got this idea to kind of reinvent himself as the go-kart off the Irish Sea. Um, oh so, yeah, but... <laughs> 
what comes with that is a big part <laughs> of this book. Um, Lloyd is a mess of contradictions. He's really self-conscious. He thinks all the islanders are speaking about him behind their back, which of course they are. Um, but he's also very arrogant. He's utterly dependent on um, the locals while also wanting to live in splendid isolation. And he orders them about, um, you know, brings them to him, sends them away, um, blows hot and cold as his needs and his interests dictate. And he also seems completely unable to confront the grim realities of what his English forebears have wrought on the Irish and what um, what the consequences of that still mm. remain um, for their lives. Yes. Very interesting. <laughs> we also have another um, outsider on the island, Masson, who's a French linguist. He's arriving for his fifth summer on the island, and this will be his last year there. He's writing up um, the conclusion for his five-year intergenerational study um, of an, of this the um, key family in this book, and it's basically to represent um, a family who for once had Irish as their only language and where the youngest generations are now um, bilingual. And English is starting to encroach on the island in general, which at one point was just Irish speaking. Um, now, Lloyd's presence presents a bit of a threat to the outcomes of Masson's study, um, bringing English speaking, only English speaking, onto the island. And also, um, Masson feels a little bit um, threatened by his um, not being the favoured visitor necessarily anymore. Um, it also brings up uh, Masson's own personal um, history, which is quite difficult. He grew up in France as the child of an Algerian mother and a French soldier father. Um, as a child, he struggled to communicate in either of his parents' language and he felt really stranded between both their cultures and between his parents because their relationship breaks down spectacularly when they return to France um, after the war in Algeria. Now, both of these outsider men are drawn to the widowed Myriad and her 15-year-old son, James. Um, and both of the visitors also try and mould these two's lives and their images to suit their own projects and their ambitions. Of course, when the visitors are not around, the villagers are debating amongst themselves as to whether the money and the opportunities that the visitors bring are actually worth the extra workload and also all the drama that comes along with it. Between each chapter, you've got these brief factual accounts of um, the sectarian killings that were going on over the summer between Catholics and Protestants, British soldiers, um, civilians. And as the summer progresses, these accounts um, become more frequent um, through the book um, and the violence of the booming bombings and the shootings ramps up um, and does start to kind of absorb into the islanders um, this sense of threat and tension. Um, that's going on on the mainland and, of course, in England as well. This is a completely absorbing story. It it has these little short snatches of dialogue um, and then it's interspersed with these longer internal musings which kind of show all those shifts and ruptures that are happening below the surface of each character and particularly for the islanders as those outside influences start to take hold over this one summer. The island becomes a bit of a microcosm and a metaphor for colonisation and its continuing effects on the communities and individuals who have have been subjected to it. This novel asks us to consider those who belong to the land and those complicated motivations and um, effects that outsiders who make their own claim on it have on, on the people who belong there. Now, there are those in this book who are desperate to leave, others who will never return for one reason or another, and there are those also who always seem to be left behind. 
key to this story is the role of language in the arts, how they can be used to educate and subjugate, illuminate and dissemble, document or to dictate our viewpoint on any particular subject. This is a really fascinating book, not very long and very absorbing. Um, Highly recommend The Colony by Audrey McGee. It just sounds amazing, Inika. And I could really see its relevance to the land that that we live on. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, there's some definite yeah. parallels here. Parallels. I think it's really absorbing, um, fascinating little study and a very, um, yeah, a very strong read. Mm. Oh, I'm going to um, put myself on that list. Um, I'll do it right after we, we talk today. Now, speaking of absorbing, um, I'd like to um, highlight um, a book. It's a memoir, um, and it's called Finding Me by Viola Davis. Now, it's just published. It's absolutely mesmerising. And um, this memoir comes from one of America's most beloved actors on both stage, screen and, and television. Mm. Now, look, um, Finding Me does come with a content warning. The story has depictions of domestic violence, sexual assault, extreme poverty, hunger, death of loved ones and racism. But um, Viola Davis provides a masterclass in resilience and she writes about her triumph over adversity with absolute skill and grace. Mm. Now, look, her powerful raw prose grabbed me on page one, but there were numerous times that I just had to put the book down and take a breath and reflect on the life of this powerhouse of a woman Mm. who was born in the late 60s in the most prosperous and powerful country in the world, but at the same time was born into abject poverty and deprivation and into a world where throughout her entire life she would be discriminated against for being black, but also subjected to the almost bizarre experience of colorism where she would judge where she'd be judged for being not black enough. Mm. So, oh boy, this is a powerful read. So Viola Davis grew up desperately poor in a place called, a small place called Central Falls, Rhode Island. And for years, um, she and her five siblings lived in a succession of rundown residences where they lacked any base, any of the basics like proper plumbing, for mm. example. The kids were often bitten by rats while they slept. Their father worked in the horse racing industry as a groom. Um, he was earning less than minimum wage and he was treated horribly by the wealthy white horse owners. He was an alcoholic and he routinely beat their mother and then he'd vanish for long periods of time. So the mum and the kids endured racist taunts and violence at at school and in the community. And the kids, the Davis kids were the only black students in their school. So Mm. you can just imagine what it was like. Well, no, we probably can't. Um, Now, because their home didn't have any running water, the poor kids had terrible personal hygiene. So this caused them to be shunned by their schoolmates and their teachers. 
um, Viola experienced sexual abuse and and all of this trauma and shame caused her to have PTSD from a very young age mm. and this led to many humiliating years of bedwetting. You can just um, feel the shame on the pages and as a reader I just marvelled at her bravery in telling her truth. Mm. But the Not chance- easy to do. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. Yeah, absolutely. So the the chance to perform on the stage became a, a very realistic possibility for Viola after she and her siblings won a talent quest against all odds at a very white suburban shopping mall. This was in the 70s. Mm. And she's um, Viola speaks movingly of sometime around this time of seeing Miss the great Miss Cicely Tyson in a film and knowing that she just had to follow in um, Miss Tyson's footsteps. Now, of course, to remind people, Cicely Tyson was the actor who shattered racial stereotypes in a, a distinguished and remarkable career on stage, screen and television. And she died in 2021, aged 96. That's right. And there's the most beautiful and touching photo in the book of Viola Davis hugging Miss Tyson. And it, it looks to have been taken about 20 years ago. And she says that whenever they met, she just couldn't stop hugging hugging her. Oh. So um, uh, Miss Tyson was um, a, a mentor and a, a role model and probably a bit like a nana to her, I'd say. <laughs> So now, um, Davis writes about the craft of acting as serving as a tool to unlock her childhood trauma and witnessing this um, phenomenon in other actors as well. And the story follows her as she claws her way to the top of the acting profession, winning Oscar, Emmy and Tony Awards along the way. Look, I, um, there's no sugarcoating this. The story is brutal but, and the writing is so unflinching that it's pretty hard to read at times. Now, Viola Davis dedicates the book to anyone who needs reminding that a life worth living can only be born from radical honesty and the courage to shed facades and be yourself. So unsurprisingly, of course, Finding Me was chosen by Oprah Winfrey for her book club earlier this year. It's really well written and it's been enthusiastically received by critics and readers all over the world. So it's a must read. You've got to put yourself on the list for finding me. Oh, Viola Davis, amazing, amazing actress. And isn't it interesting how many people come from trauma and and arts um, helps to... The, the, yeah, the creativity. Um, Somehow... And how arts um, can heal. It can heal. That's the word I was looking for mm. too, healing. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Well, this is a little bit of a, a turning, uh, yeah, a turn away from um, mm. that, that quite heavy memoir there. But um, I've been, um, uh, had a week off recently and I really enjoyed um, on my holiday reading All About Evie by Matson Taylor. It's a 2022 book, um, second in a series, and it's available in an adult fiction collection on CD and it's on Libby on Overdrive as an e-book and e-audio book.
Now, All About Evie is a total bop of a book, and I found it perfect for my holiday reading. Mm. Um, it's 1972, um, and Evie has been working as a production assistant at the BBC for 10 years now. And this is following her shift um, as a 17-year-old from rural Yorkshire to the big smoke of London at the end of the very first book in this series, The Miseducation of Evie Epworth, which is from 2020. Um, which I've read as well and absolutely loved. So I really wanted to see what else happened to Evie. Now, after an unfortunate incident at her workplace uh, involving a pregnancy test and Princess Anne, this <laughs> happens in the first chapter. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, <laughs> Evie is suddenly jobless and uh, she's looking for her next big career move. But never fear, she's Evie's always got her wits about her and she's got a wicked sense of humour. She has a string of ex-lovers from across the <laughs> continent who we hear about through the book who last, if anything, from a few hours to a few weeks. Um, she's got a wardrobe stuffed with Bieber boots and Aussie Clark caftans. The wardrobe <laughs> was an absolute highlight for me. And she's got some fab mates in her corner and on the blower back at home as well, whenever mm. she needs them. So after a couple of false starts with her job hunt, she winds up writing the arts listings for a weekly What's On um, in London guide. Well, of course, as it is the 1970s, um, she's also making endless cups of tea and getting the groceries in for uh, on behalf of the men of the office. Uh, I mean, this was the reality, wasn't it? Yeah. Now, in order to do her job properly, she just needs someone to help her with a bit of a crash course in the classical <laughs> music and opera side. Um, she's in in severe danger of getting busted by the jealous hippie poet who sits at the nest desk and is a little bit peeved <laughs> at Evie swinging into this um, kind of coveted <laughs> role. There's also a second storyline um, in the book which covers the backstories of a few of the key characters who helped to educate or miseducate Evie in the first book. So this gives the author a bit of an opportunity to to really thoughtfully go into some of the other challenges and joys of um, of women's different pathways in those early periods. So it goes from sort of 1920s or 30s upward um, to, to the current day with Evie and to compare and contrast with Evie's experiences. Um, it provides a bit more diversity in the book. Um, there is enough detail provided in those sections to fill in the gaps if you come into this one without having read the first. But if you want to get the most um, out of it, I would grab the miseducation with Evie Epworth um, first before reading all about Evie. Now, the author, Matson Taylor, describes himself as a novelist who writes funny books about serious things. He's a design historian and occasional disco dancer. Mm. Sounds right up my alley. Yeah. <laughs> um, he previously, he's um, spoken at many museums and universities across the world, but it's, um, he worked at the V&A for many years. Mm. And these, um, his role there inspired his Evie stories. And you can see it in the authentic period details that he includes uh-huh. in the book that just set the scene so beautifully. In All About Evie, he says he was wanting to chart, and I quote, the messy end of the 1960s and the choppy beginnings of the 1970s. Lots of change in that time. Mm. Um, He has this really gorgeous, snappy, vivid writing style that's so delightful to read, and it really captures that sharp wit and warmth of a slice of swinging London. It's full of heart. Um, it's got a bit of romance. It's nostalgic, but it's got a clear eye on that nostalgia. So it keeps mm. it in check and it's got a really cheeky sense of humour. I highly recommend that you grab All About Evie by Matson Taylor and the first book in the series, The Miseducation of Evie Epworth as well. 
Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yep, I've um, put myself on. I've got I'm on the list for both of those too. So they just sound great. Well, look, I'm keeping um, our last book on a um, fairly light note as well because, you know, we we all need a bit of, of light and heavy stuff with our, our books, don't we? That's right. So, out. <laughs> yes, that's right. So this one is called uh, Long Past Summer, and it's by um, an author called Nui Kerwin. Um, now, and it's uh, a new book as well, just published. So I stumbled across this uh, while I was browsing at my local library about a week ago. And I've got to admit, I was drawn to it by the cover. It's um, a beautiful side view illustration of the main character, Michaela, plus an attractive cursive font that read, Long Past Summer, a novel, an ex-lover, an ex-friend, and an explosive reunion. <laughs> so just like that, I was sold. You would be too, wouldn't you? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and it it just felt like the beach read I needed when I, I couldn't quite get to the beach. <laughs> so it's a, a debut by the author Noe Kerwin. Now, she's a New Yorker who grew up in both the Bronx and in the San Francisco area. Mm. So she describes herself as by coastal, which um, I'd never really heard that description, and I find that interesting as a Kiwi because let's face it, we're all by coastal down here, aren't we? Or <laughs> I would say, if we're not, we're at least by coastal curious, surely. <laughs> um, us Kiwis. So anyway, the story is told using a dual timeline, which seems to be a, a thing these days. So we've got the present day in New York, and then we've got 20 years ago in the southern state of Georgia. So our main characters are Michaela, a successful black lawyer. She's ambitious and aiming for a partnership at a very fancy law firm. We've got Cameron, um, a white fashion photographer, and he was Michaela's first love. Then we've got Julie, a white woman who was Michaela's high school best friend. She's also Cameron's ex-wife and the mother of his two children. So it's a little bit complicated. So when we were first introduced to the characters um, 20 years ago, our BFFs, Michaela and Julie, have just finished high school and they're about 18 years old. And Cameron is already in college and he's 21. So Michaela and Julie get arrested at a high school football game for streaking across the field covered in nothing but glitter. (laughs) Shocking, I tell you. Now, Cameron, who's an aspiring photographer, has happens to have a part-time job at the sheriff's office as a mugshot taker. So he's assigned to take photos of the young woman when they're in custody. And But, of course, they're clothed, of, of course. By this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, uh, from here, um, a friendship begins and, and all sorts of romantic feelings begin to develop over a long, hot summer. The trio do everything together and Cameron Cameron all always has his camera at the ready. That was hard to say. And he takes hundreds, thousands of photos of the two young women. And the photos are very chaste at this stage, or this is what we're led to believe. Uh-huh. And Michaela and Cameron have a have a relationship. Um, first love brings with it very strong feelings, as we know. And um, at this point in the story, to be honest, I was pretty bored. 
But the, the summer is tinged with sadness because Michaela is leaving Georgia in autumn and moving to New York to start a law degree at a top university. Now, I did like this part. It's made quite clear that as a young black woman, Michaela needs to move to New York so that she can reach her potential. Mm. If small town racism and all that goes with it, necessitates her move. And from here, the story is told using the dual timeline and it follows Michaela, Cameron and Jill as they leave these carefree days and move into adulthood. We fast forward 20 years and we find that Michaela's a successful lawyer in New York. She's living the life she has carefully curated for herself. She's got a successful career, a great relationship with Hot Doctor and a satisfying social life. She's about to be made a partner in her law firm, But then Cameron comes charging back into her life and derails everything she thought she'd ever knew or known. Um, You see, because after Cameron and Michaela had broken up all those years ago, he married and had children with Julie on the rebound, no doubt. But it emerges that Cameron and Julie are now divorced. So Cameron and Michaela's present day attraction becomes complicated by two things. Well, firstly, Michaela lives with Hot Doctor, and secondly, there's a nasty legal battle that's been brought by Julie over one of the photographs from 20 years ago. Mm. And this jeopardises all their lives and the people they love. Now, look, most of the book didn't grab me. And I would say, for me, overall, this was a disappointing read. But other readers may find that their mileage varies with this. But I must say that Kerwin very effectively describes the gaslighting and microaggressions faced daily by people of colour, even in a big liberal city like New York, or perhaps I should say, especially in a big liberal city like New York. And Michaela must work 10 times as hard to receive a quarter of the reward as some of her entitled white colleagues. So the romance didn't do it for me, but the racial politics was well described. So, um, Long Past Summer by Nui Kerwin. Yep, go for it. You may enjoy it. Yeah, good beach read, do you think, for, for Good beach read, yes. Well, look, I think we're just about run out of time, sadly, as always. So, look, thanks for tuning in today, people. Take care and be kind to yourselves. Hi, da-da. Kakite ano. Was brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 9:35 p.m. on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz/booksandbeyond. Every day, every day, every day.